This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Could that potentially be transferred to future generations in our family tree? Like for an example I can think about is like, natural selection where we've just evolved when we're looking at someone from far away if we're if they're trying to hug us first thing we look at is their hands because we've evolved to think that they might be carrying weapons uh, or how we look at competition in general is that something that could also be playing to future generations yes this this is some of the amazing knowledge that we have now that we did not have very long ago and in the book that I wrote, which is designed to be accessible to anyone and everyone to learn something about themselves and about other people and about what may be going on in our lives. good place to start here, Paul, is to define trauma and what that means for, for, for people, because I guess people may have different interpretations of how to really define it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the word trauma can have a lot of different definitions, of course, but the, the definition that I'm, that I'm choosing and, and settling on that runs throughout the book is, is anything that happens to us, which can be acute, or it can be the result of something that's chronic, or it can also be something that's vicarious, right? But we experience the trauma. And it's defined as such because it leaves us different as we move forward. So it so it overwhelms our coping skills, right, as we're experiencing it, and then it leaves us different as we move forward. So, so the idea that a some kind of relatively small thing can be a trauma, like we could apply that word to it, but not in the context of, of having a deep impact on our brain biology and our psychology. If we're interested in trauma from that perspective of what is changing us, right? And what is making life different and harder for us as we go forward, that's the definition of trauma. It overwhelms us and it leaves us different as life moves forward. Got it. And you're saying it could actually affect the biology um, and, and chemistry of our brains and bodies, because I guess that is the one thing I had initially is like, let's say you had, I don't know, like a bad date and you have a certain prejudgment of like this particular person or whatnot. Right. And that affects how you approach your dating life with this particular type of person, let's say, and you have prejudgments about that person, even if it could be completely wrong. Is that counting as a traumatic event? No, no. Wait, it might be something adversarial or something averse, right? It could be something negative, right? Or maybe the event itself wasn't negative, but the person's response to it. Maybe the person was having a bad day and blames the other person, right? And then reads something negative into people who look like that person, right? I mean, it could be a a mistaken perception or a bad day, something averse, right? Those are 
you know, these things happen in life, right? I mean, if we get out of bed in the morning, those things are going to happen, right? But the definition of trauma is it's it's not a soft definition, right? It's it, it's based in the hard science of of the, the the absolute truth that things can happen to us that change our brain function as we go forward, right? It can change the genes, the way that we pass on our genes, whether our genes are active or not. It can change the emotions that we associate with our memories. It can change vigilance mechanisms inside of us when we meet new people. So so what we're talking about changes the brain, and it's identifiable through routes of science. Now, we can't just scan someone and see it in all of us. You know, we often have to figure that out by talking with someone or taking stock of ourselves, right? But we can understand that something has happened that leaves us different moving forward. That's why this is based in science and medicine. It's not a soft concept. Does that make sense, that part? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and I think you may also mention about like the different types of traumas that exist. Can you break that down for us? Sure. Traumas can be acute chronic and vicarious. And, and the, the easiest way to, to start is with acute trauma, because that's the one that we can understand. A lot of our research and, and clinical understanding of trauma comes through military combat, right? It's when people first started being interested in like the impact of soldiers you know, coming back from war. And, and w- what we know is that acute trauma, so think about a combat trauma, an assault, right? an accident, the loss of a loved one, right? Th- th- these are events that we can see very clearly overwhelm our coping mechanisms, so overwhelm what our brain is trying to bring to bear, right, to handle the trauma, right? And then pathways change, sort of short circuit inside of us, and now we're different going forward. Right mm. now, while that's most obvious in cases of acute uh, of acute trauma, it can happen in chronic trauma too. So, if you imagine someone who's going through life and constantly being being made to feel less than, right, a constant sense of vulnerability or of lack of safety in the world around the person, and and there are many reasons that can be based upon gender identity or socioeconomic status or immigration status, right? Like th- these are things that that people can experience. Right, as they go through life being treated or seen in a different way that then weighs on that person, weighs on that person's coping skills, right? And it's much less dramatic than an acute incident. And now everything is different, right? Mm-hmm. But it can make those brain changes nonetheless. And we can also experience the same brain changes vicariously. You know, if you imagine the person who's been glued to the news and, and, and watching and identifying with, with so many awful things happening in the world around us, you know, we, we're blessed as a species with empathy, right? So we can feel other people's pain and suffering. And, and it's good that we can do that, right? That's why we, it's why and how we can relate to people and help people, right? When, when they need our help, even though they're different from us, right? So empathy is good, but it also means that we can relate to other people's trauma. And sometimes those brain changes happen because of someone's such strong uh, identification with, for example, you know, parents trying to shepherd out of danger, you know, children in the Syria crisis, right? Or now in the crisis in the Ukraine, right? That we can identify with people and vicariously experience their trauma, and it can therefore change our own brains. And you know, it's not a, a soft conjecture, right? This is, this is absolutely in accord with what the science tells us. 
Right, right. And I guess how does um, chronic trauma affect you differently than acute? Acute meaning, I guess, like there's like a there's like a specific event that happened, and that was probably unsuspected, and that leaves you mm-hmm. a different person uh, moving forward and how you interpret that. Whereas a chronic, it seems like um, something that you've just gone through, maybe it's low acuteness. So it's like small mm-hmm. things that just kind of accumulates right. over time. Right. And, you know, an example I can think about is like, I interviewed this woman named Yunmi Park, and she escaped North Korea. Uh-huh. And the experiences she's been through from going into North Korea, escaping, go to China, go to Mongolia, and then eventually making it down to America, it right. almost seems incredibly traumatic for a regular person to go through that. But for her, because of her upbringing in North Korea and the, you know, and the regime that she's uh, experienced, she's been through, it's almost like the things that she describes, there's a numbing feeling to how she deals with it. And it, you know, I guess it doesn't, it almost doesn't seem traumatic when she describes it and how she feels because of the norm is like how normal it is for her to go through these and see these different traumatic experiences for a regular person. Right. Right. So she, I mean, my, most likely what I imagine as I hear that is that she has had to make adjustments right inside of her. Her brain has had to make adjustments in the service of survival. Right. That probably if on any given day you know, she had a full apprehension of her situation and the tremendous risk and, you know, and all the awfulness of it and the, the, the terrible things that could happen. Right. That that would be terribly overwhelming. Right. So what happens is, is the brain tries to numb itself little by little, right, in, in the service of survival. And it would be very surprising to me if the, the person you described didn't have brain changes associated with chronic trauma. Right. And, you know, it's like you think about the mathematical principle. Right. I mean, if you have, you know, if you have a weight on one side of a scale and you have an empty you know, empty cup on the other, you know, you could pour water in it all at once and make the scale change, right? Or you could pour it in drop by drop, you could pour it in little by little, but eventually the scales do change. And mm-hmm. while acute trauma and chronic trauma and vicarious trauma look different from the outside, right? And their impact upon the brain occurs over a different time period, you can nonetheless get to the same brain changes on the other side of those traumas. And again, it's it's scientific fact. It's not, it's, it's not a soft assertion that like, is we were starting off saying like, is everything negative trauma? And it, no, it's not, it's not things that are adversarial that can help us build strength or character or reflectiveness. Like this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about being overwhelmed and on the other side of being overwhelmed, being changed. Right. Right. And it's all you're saying at the end of the day, it's, it is a personal experience so what someone may event might some what someone may interpret as a traumatic event as exact same event could not be as traumatic or traumatic at all for another person right right how we're impacted by by traumatic things right it depends on many many variables so some of them are genetic right some of them are life experience right you Mm. know what are the particular idiosyncrasies of what can get to me versus what could get to you right? I mean, we're different people with different genetics. And, and there are things you could say, wow, if they rise to like severe traumas, you would think, well, that could be likely to impact anybody and everyone, right? Mm. But, but there are many, many 
traumas that may or may may or may not impact a person in a way that leaves them different. You know, there's a there's a whole theory around the multiple hit hypothesis uh, that that says a person can often have multiple hits of trauma. Right. But then one of them pushes the brain into those changes. Right. So that's another factor, too. Right. It may be that, you know, I have four or five hits, but I sort of do okay, you know, because there's resilience in me, or maybe they didn't quite get me in, you know, in exactly the way that overwhelms me. But it might be that fifth or sixth or seventh that then is the trauma that that tips over to the changes in the brain. So so it's it's our genetics, it's our life experience, and it's also our trauma experience experience. So, so, right, we have to look at the seed of the trauma, but then the soil that it falls into, which is the soil of each one of us and who we are and our, what our life experience is. Right. When you say these like four or five hits, are you talking about, does hit mean a similar, a very similar type of traumatic experiences that have accumulated consecutively over time throughout your life? Or are these just four or five random different traumatic events uh, such that your brain just can't handle it over time? Yeah, they, they could be. I mean, often there are different kinds of traumas, right? And you say, well, how badly does that traumatic event impact the brain, right? And it may be that it was a, you know, a car accident many years ago, right? But the, but the brain was not changed going forward, but, but that taxed the brain, right? And then there's another trauma a few years later and another trauma a few years later. And then you might have something relatively minor that happens after that, but it's that that tips the brain, Right into the changes that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to know with traumatic events, just given that experience usually can toughen us or um, oftentimes weaken us as well. But there's this thing around like adaptations that we have around our just how we've been evolved over time. Is there such a thing that can relate to traumatic events as well, such that your second or third traumatic event won't impact you as much because maybe you've toughened the experience and kind of your resiliency around dealing with that such that, um, you know, after your fourth or fifth one, maybe you can handle it a little bit better versus the first or second time. Under ideal circumstances, which unfortunately are not common in the world around us, that could be the case, right? Unfortunately, very often, most often, traumatic events go unexplored, unprocessed, right? They sort of stay inside of us and they then carry that negative weight, right? But it doesn't have to be that way. So if you imagine if a traumatic event happens and, and a person does think about it, reflect upon it, talk about it, right, and comes to a sense of self that is strengthened by it. So, for example, like that thing happened to me, and that thing was very, very difficult. So, imagine an assault, right, which which will you know, trauma reflexively creates shame in us, right. So, so, so imagine a person is assaulted, and now there's a, ref, a reflexive feeling of shame right? That often happens in us, right? Like, that was my fault. What did I do wrong, right? Um, what did I do to bring it on myself? Am I cursed, right? Like, these are things we often think about after a, a trauma, like an assault, right? So imagine the person thinks about that, reflects upon that, talks to trusted others, gets some therapy around it, for example, right? And, and, and really comes to terms with that, of saying, look, that was not my fault, right? It was, it was the fault of the person, say, who attacked me, right? And, and what did I show 
during that event. You know, I, I showed strength and I showed resilience. You know, I, I was concerned about other people, right, even in the immediate aftermath, right? And I, I pulled myself together and I got help. And, and you know, th- th- that this was someone else's fault and I responded, right, with health and with strength in myself, right? Now we can build our internal reserves and build our sense of self and build our strength, right, as a result of the trauma. So it's not impossible, of course, and that does happen. But unfortunately, we we don't often recognize trauma, right, because Mm -hmm. trauma creates reflexive shame, we're much more likely to hide the trauma inside of us. So, so it can go the good way that you're saying, you know, for all of these reasons, you know, a, a really broken healthcare system and a broken mental healthcare system, the reflexive shame that trauma makes in, inside of us that we often hide the traumas and we should keep them inside of us and accumulate them which mm. is probably a reason the the multiple hit hypothesis is true because we most often carry the weight of traumas and then it's a subsequent trauma that can push us over into now really having those those brain changes that make us m- more fearful and more avoidant and more vigilant and all these negative things that can happen to us yeah, yeah. And, and before we're going to go into about identifying what happened, uh, you know, how we can identify traumas, like maybe we can just do a quick breakdown of what is happening to our brain and body and what the connections around that are as we go through trauma and, you know, even repress trauma and suppress that right. experience. Right. There's so many changes in us and and science is really just at the beginning of understanding these changes but but i can i can highlight two that are that i think are very striking right i can highlight two changes so one is is in the brain right so there are vigilant sensors in us that are active to to greater or lesser degrees right and after the kind of trauma that that we're t- that we're talking about that overwhelms the coping skills and leaves the brain different going forward we can have shifts in vigilance mechanisms that make us see other people through a different lens right and it's a lens of potential threat Right. So so the changes in the vigilance mechanisms would mean that, say, if, for example, you know, I meet you for the first time and I don't know you. Right. That without the changes in the brain, I might think, okay, here's a new person. Right. Like maybe something interesting could come of this. Right. Like maybe we could get along and, you know, and I'm interested in you that way. And and how do you look like you're responding to me, right? Like there's a curiosity and an openness, right? Whereas after trauma, the brain mechanisms really shift to just to looking primarily at, hey, are are you a threat to me? Right. Mm-hmm. And and that might not necessarily be just like a, a physical threat, right? Not just oh, are you going to attack me, right? But more, do you mean well towards me? Right. There's a little bit of suspiciousness, right? And you imagine how that can change things as we go through life, as we meet new people. And does that help us make new friends? Does that help us get ahead in our job? Does it help us find the right person to date? Right. Like it doesn't help us with these things to have an, an approach that's automatically about are you a threat to me? Right. So imagine like that's a shift in the brain and it's a huge shift that changes our psychology in all sorts of ways. Right. And I would say another aspect is is changes in our immune system. Right. That the stress 
of these changes in the brain that can change how our immune system functions and can make us more vulnerable to all sorts of things from autoimmune diseases, right? So illnesses like lupus, for example, right? is just, just one example. It can make us more susceptible to cardiovascular disease, right? To heart attacks, right? To strokes. So, so you imagine now we're talking about just two changes in the brain and in the body that can, that can affect absolutely everything about us, including our very survival. And, and that's true. That's not conjectural. Those things are true. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. And even around how this can be passed around through our generations, let's say if we have kids and our grandkids, is there a chance that if we don't deal with the traumatic events that have happened and that makes up our brain and, and our, our bodies, could that potentially be transferred to future generations in our family tree? Like for an example I can think yes. about is like natural selection where we've just evolved when we're looking at someone from far away, if we're, if they're trying to hug us, first thing we look at is their hands because we've evolved to think that they might be carrying weapons mm-hmm. uh, or how we look at competition in general. Is that something that could also be playing to future generations? Yes. Yes. This is some of the amazing knowledge that we have now that we did not have very long ago. And in the book that I wrote, which is designed to be accessible to anyone and everyone to learn something about themselves and about other people and about what may be going on in our lives, right? The truths inside of us and in the world around us. And and in one of the chapters, I interviewed Darren Richarder, who is a trauma researcher at Stanford. And and Darren is a a, a great expert about trauma in terms of the, the biology and also the impact on people, including across generations. And in that discussion with him, you know, we we talk about this, how trauma now can impact how genes are passed along years and years later. So in some of Darren's testimony, for example, in the the International Court of Justice, the, the, the idea was to look differently, look truthfully, for example, on at rape as an act of war right, where it for so long was seen as a sort of one-time event, like something bad and something criminal happened, right, and that needs to be understood and and assessed, but it was very sort of time-limited, right, but our new understanding around trauma says this is is not a one-time bad event, right, but this event impacts that person, throughout the rest of that person's life. And it impacts that community in an ongoing way. And it impacts how genes are transmitted even years down the road. So you may have children who are predisposed to greater vigilance, children who Mm. have behavioral changes because of the change in how the genes are expressed that could come from trauma years and years before the child was even conceived. Wow. So So imagine that, truth like we know that now yet we don't respond to trauma that way i mean you know the international court of justice is interested in hearing someone with the expertise of darren richard or testify right and like that's obviously a very good thing but it hasn't made it into our daily lives right when we think about how are we behaving in the world how are we taking care of ourselves and the people around us are we making impacts that affect people across the rest of their lives that affect their children that affect our societies that affect how productive we can be in our societies how happy we can be there's so much going on yet we kind of just wantonly sort of stumble forward right Mm. through all these difficulties in the world the opiate 
pandemic, right? And and you talk about a, a true pandemic, right, of, of opiate overdoses and deaths in the tens of thousands. And then, of course, the COVID pandemic and racial injustice in our societies. There's so many traumas that we just sort of run forward and we don't look at what are we leaving behind, right? And if we don't attend to that and try and understand it and try and help people and try and prevent trauma in the first place, what we're doing is we're changing ourselves and changing our societies for the worse. And if we don't do something about that, it will have a cumulative effect that really puts our survival at risk. And I don't think that's a catastrophizing thing to say. I mean, I think if we just stand back and look at what, what the science that we understand and what's going on in the world, right, even over just the past several years, then I think it's hard not to look at it and say, well, we, we really run, we run risk to our survival as a species. And that includes climate change and so many other things that if we don't look at what's going on, right? And we, if we don't look through a lens that's not the lens of trauma, right? The lens of I'm just trying to take care of myself or I'm angry or frustrated or scared or ashamed and I'm just retreating into myself, right? If we don't work against that, I mean, I, I don't know how it's hard to not see that we're all at risk. Yeah, that, that seems to be the biggest shift in terms of the perspective of how we see that lens of individual trauma and dealing with that, which makes it more mac like micro. And if that person doesn't deal with it, or if I don't deal with it, it's my own problem and it's that person's own problem. And that makes a problem super small scale. But as you described, looking at a macro scale and how this can impact on a collective uh, society and what, what results that come from that, um, I, I would imagine this would be a completely different way of how someone is motivated to deal with their own, but also how we punish from a legal system certain things that can cause other people trauma, you know, so that it's not just one for one, because some, sometimes like it, it does have that collective um, impact in terms of how severe this trauma is. That's fascinating. Um, Thank you. Yes. Now, sorry, were you, were you, were you have something yeah, to No, to I agree yeah. completely. I mean, you're making the link from the individual to the broader society around us, right? And how we have to be responsible. Right. Mm -hmm. If we're just running, you know, rushing along headlong right into the into the future without taking a look at, hey, are we taking care of ourselves now? Right. Are, are we trying to to prevent right things that, that put us all at risk? Right. Mm -hmm. Then we, we do put ourselves all at risk. Right. Because we're not looking at the factors that put us in in that precarious situation. And, and, and I think that there's just such a very clear truth to that that there's so much that we are that we are ignoring as we rush headlong into the future and we don't stop and look at the impact that it's having on us i mean if you think about our greater interconnectedness say through social media right which sometimes allows for greater understanding right? Like, you know, I think good things can happen as I think, you know, your podcast is right. you're trying to get, get understanding out to people and start dialogue, right? Like there's a lot of good things that happen through social media, but imagine the impact of trauma in an, in an, um, you know, in a time, an era when we're so much more interconnected, right? That people may be much more likely to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to go search for people out there in the world, right, who are different from me, not so that I could understand them better, right, but so I can assail them. 
right? So that I can be angry and aggressive towards them, right? And if you think about that defensive mindset, right? Of, hey, if I don't know you, right? Do you, are you a threat to me, right? Mm -hmm. It's much harder than to have empathy and to say, hey, well, we're all in the same boat. You know, we may be, you know, different socioeconomic status or, or sexuality or gender identity or race or religion, right? But does that matter, right? Like we're, we're the same in what we're up against. And it's trauma mm -hmm. that leads us to, to be in a more defensive position where we're much more likely to, to identify other people and the differences we see as a threat, which then evokes aggression, right? And I think that we see that in the world around us, you know, how much behavior from people in public positions, right? How people treat one another online, right? Ways that people would never do, how people can ally around agendas that are aggressive or racist or demeaning to other people, right? And I think it's not an accident that there's a lot of that going on, right? Because if we don't look at the trauma in us, we don't look at how it predisposes us to aggregate into groups that seem like we're similar, to over-identify with that similarity, to become more suspicious of others and the world around us. And and, you know, it, it's these changes inside of us that, that really determine our behaviors. And if we're going to come together to solve the problems in our societies, right, or are we going to just look for differences and fight each other to the death, right, or while we're busy fighting each other, right, there are dictators and other aggressive people or climate change that, that bring us all down. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, in many ways, this could be one of the many deep rooted issues around why people associate social media with such negativity and darkness is that now we have this double-edged sword, which is, can be a very powerful tool if we leverage it. Right. But now that everyone is connected, as you mentioned, everyone has a voice. Everyone has the ability to reach millions of people because we're so connected and it could be a very positive experience if everyone is uplifted but it could also be a very dark place because with, especially with trauma, the biggest thing that really hurts us is when someone attacks our identity because that's a lot of who we are. And when we have shame around certain experiences and we identify people that attacks our identity, that's like a calling to put negativity out in the world and combine that with, you know, how connected we are, um, you know, thousands of years ago when we lived in tribes, like we just, even if you had so much negative energy, it wasn't going to reach such people. But um, yeah, it seems to be something we really need to get on top of if we, if we want, you know, and it's only going to be more connected um, right. over the next 20, 30 years. So yeah. We're, we're at huge risk if we don't understand this, right? Otherwise our, our interconnection just allows us to hurt each other more and more. Right. Yeah. And, and we don't want that if the interconnection makes more harm than it does, that it does good connection and healing. Right. And unity and say, oh, I don't you know, we, 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 you and I could be different in so many ways in our backgrounds and age and experience. And but look, we can connect and see similarity between us. Right. And maybe we have a shared agenda of wanting the world to be a better place. But if that is outweighed by the negativity and all of the aggression, right, that, that comes from feeling hurt and stigmatized, is it traumatized with all those changes in the brain, then like, how's that going to go going forward, right? I mean, if the bad outweighs the good, as we run that forward, where is that going 
to end up. And, and I think we see it in, in, the, in being dissociated from facts, right? I mean, the, the idea that, that people so often really don't necessarily want to be right as much as they just want to say their piece, right? Mm. And, and, you know, you see this where even, you know, two people may have a disagreement and it may be to clear that one is right and the other is wrong. There's nothing to do with politics, right? Like something like a crowd size, right? Like, hey, you can look and see that is bigger than that, right? So why would people insist on the opposite, right? Because then it's divorced from what's actually true, right? She says, I want to assert myself, right? I, I, I feel weak. I feel disempowered. I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I feel vulnerable. I feel unsafe. And I just want to assert myself. That's why I'm going to double down on what I say, even if it's obvious that I'm wrong, right? Because it's not about right and wrong. And now we're really in danger, Right. Mm. If it's about anger and frustration and fear and how that can manifest itself as aggression, that's really not tied to any rational agenda. Boy, we're really in trouble. And there's a lot of that going on. And it's going on on both ends of the political spectrum. I mean, this isn't a political argument that I'm making. I think it's going on on both ends of the political spectrum where it's more important that I have my say and have it my way. Right. Then it is that I think about things, reflect, listen to someone else's opinion, you know, integrate facts into my head and come to, oh, maybe we disagree. And I say, you know, actually, you're right on this point. You know, mm. wow. OK, like, let me let me take that. Think, think about it. And I may have new points to make to argue with you another day. But like, we don't see very much of that. Right. You know, we see, oh, now I'm even more infuriated. If it's become, so it's become clear to me that you're right and I'm wrong, I'm going to double down on that. And then maybe the attacking starts getting personal. Right. Because, you know, it's not about learning or communicating. Right. It's just about asserting. Right. And, mm. you know, it's hard to, to look at so much of what's going on in the world around us to not see like, hey, that's really prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess the, the next logical step here is to talk about what are the ways to identify the traumatic events that have happened. Because I, you know, I, I see it sometimes from the other perspective of growing up in a home and culture in South Korea, where the idea of talking about your emotions and um, almost like normalizing not going to therapy and not yeah. talking about your emotions and traumatic events is the norm, particularly with like the masculinity environment there. So I, I've never actually even had the tools to talk about that and, and, and mostly, right. you know, repress a lot of these things. So I guess like, what are, what are like the first steps for someone to even identify? Some people may not even think they've had traumatic events, uh, but they're just consciously repressing it. Well, what are kind of the first steps someone takes to start identifying it that's a great it's a, a great question and 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 the answer I, I think it's like a good answer to the question right which is that there's simple things that that each of us can do today right even if one has had no experience with even the idea of mental health or the idea that something may be going on inside of us because because if something has happened to us we know but as you said we push it down right we suppress it right and we can just stop and pay attention to what is going on inside of ourselves. So, so two examples of that. One can be, what is our self-talk, right? That we, we very often do not stop 
and think like, what am I saying to myself when I'm walking from one place to another, right? Or when I'm in the car driving from one place to another, right? In the moments between doing one thing and another. And, and very often we'll learn, right? If our self-talk is saying negative things to us all the time, right? I mean, that's something to really take note of, right? The, the, the idea that what we're saying to ourselves is really indicative of what's going on inside of us, but even though we may be saying it to ourselves over and over again, we're not aware of it, is just begging for us to stop and pay attention to what's going on, right? And if you see him saying negative things to myself all the time, or harsh things to myself all the time, right? So, you know, drop a pen and say, oh, you stupid son, you know, is that what mm. I'm saying to myself, right? Like, what's, what's going on there? Because does it really make sense? I mean, we don't think that of others generally, right? If somebody drops a pen, we don't think, oh, what a stupid fool, right? Right. But if I'm doing that to myself, like, what is it telling me? And was that always going on inside of me? Here's a hint. The answer is no, right? You know, I mean, just as, as a, an exaggerated example, like nobody comes out the womb, right? Saying terrible things to themselves every moment. Now, of course, you know, we're not developed that way yet, but the point I'm making is that that's not natural in us, right? So, so what point did that start happening, right? That we can start to become interested in it, curious about it, right? The mm. same can be true. The second example is of creating a life narrative of what do I actually think about my life? What do I have to say about my life? Is it that, oh, I'll never get anywhere or, you know, I'll only have bad relationships or I can't have a better job, right? Is, is, is that what's going on? inside is that my, my narrative of myself, right? Because we can get curious about the narratives inside of us, right? Mm. And then if we see things that are pretty negative, we can think, okay, where did that come from? And it's remarkable how often, doesn't take much when we start thinking about these things, we kind of know the answers, right? Or if we don't, we can write about it, right? And reflect on our writing, talk to someone that we really trust, right? Or that's a great you know, role for therapists to play, right? To come in and, and talk. I mean, you know, how many times I've talked with a person about what is their life narrative? And if their life narrative is very negative, right? I'll never find somebody. I can do well at work and I can take care of myself that way. And, you know, I've got a good place to live, a good roof over my head, but I never, I'll never find a good relationship, right? Okay, that's interesting. Why that outlier? And then, you know, we can trace back sometimes to say a real trauma that happened in a relationship, right? Maybe there was an assault in a relationship. Maybe someone, you know, a partner disappeared very quickly. Maybe a partner lost their life, right? You know, something that changes what that person feels inside going forward. And we can go and look at that and we can look at the fear and the shame that may have been created, right? And how that now keeps something inside of us that we need to get at in order to be healthier. You know, the, the, the parallel that's often used is to an abscess, right? You know, medically an abscess is in a, a, an area of infection inside of us that gets walled off by the body, right? So sometimes we can have abscesses say in our abdomens, right? And, you know, they kind of spin off symptoms, right? Where we might have a low grade fever or just not feel great, or you have the sweats every now and then. And, and you know, so, so the abscess isn't killing us in that sense, but it is hurting us and harming us. And it's impacting our experience of life because there's something that's, that's pathological there that needs to be taken care of, right? Mm -hmm. And if we lance or, you know, we go in and we clean out that abscess, now we don't have those symptoms anymore. And the thought is these traumas that we carry with us are like abscesses, but they're in our psyche, right? They're in our minds and that we can go and we can look at them and we can shine the light of day. We don't have to be afraid of them. And when we think mm -hmm. about them, talk about them, process them, then they're not hurting us anymore. 
And I've seen yeah. that more times than I can possibly count. Like it's not theoretical. There's just like a common sense to like, oh, that's exactly how this can play out when a person realizes, right? Puts some thoughts and words and sometimes comes and talks to someone about it. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess like being the first step is really just being aware that you are having a negative self-talk in the first place, because most people right. don't even realize it's just part of their right. natural habits. Yeah. Right. 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 We, we have to stop and think what's going on inside of us. And it's remarkable. So many times we're so busy, right? Like you do sprinting through life that we don't stop and say, what's going on inside of me? And if you do what I do for a living, you, you say that to people a lot, right? And, and it's like, it's a great process. It's so enjoyable. I mean, sometimes it can be arduous and, you know, there can be tears and distress and, but like, that's okay. That's often how we heal ourselves and how we get happier and healthier right so it, it, it can be such a, a joyous and healthy process to get at all of this right and i try and write about that in the book where I, I i write about real stories of real people and ways in which ways in which people come through trauma right and ways in which in in getting the right help or sometimes just having the right mindset and reflectiveness in us you know we we don't have to be just made less and less healthy by trauma, but the opposite can happen. And I think there's some very, very heartening stories in the book that I've gotten really good response from people who like read them and like they really resonate, you know, with them. And, and again, there's stories of, of people, right? So, so they may be a very different person and situation from the reader, right? But, but there shows our common humanness, right? That, that we, we can be helped and healed by other people's stories, right? And, and there's the truth of, of how the empathy, right? That can make vicarious trauma in us can, can also be used for healing between people, whether it's through a story or it's through even our own communing with ourselves and our reflections and our writing about ourselves, if we choose to do that, or in our communing with other people, friends, family, professionals who can help us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be the most powerful note is like, what is the story that you tell yourself inside of your head? Because that impacts almost every decision and how, how big you can think. I mean, an example is, you know, you tell someone to look for the color red around the room and you just say red, 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 red. And then you ask them to look for the color green and it's all of a sudden incredibly difficult, right? Because your right. brain is so fixate, fixated on the color yes. red. And when you're, maybe you had a traumatic event where your parents got a divorce over money issues and you all associate money with evil or bad things or, 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 you know, greediness. And then you tell yourself that you don't, you're not the kind of person that wants to make a lot of money. Well, that becomes a story of how you deal with, your, you know, your career and all of these different things. Like it's such a powerful thing. It just accumulates over time. Yes. And yeah, that yes. story it's that a we great tell example. ourselves. Yep. It's a great example, right? Because you're highlighting something where really one thing has nothing to do with the other, right? So say a, a parent's had a difficult divorce is over money, right? That doesn't have anything to do with making enough money later in life to like support oneself well, right? Mm -hmm. Or to say, hey, if I feel like I'm not being paid fairly, right, then I want to assert for myself, right? But 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 we make one thing have to do with the other, right? Through the stories that trauma creates in us right so i think mm. you gave a great example in how like we don't see that unless we go and look for it and the person can think right i'm not a greedy person right and i'm not just after money okay well that may be true but that story may have become so oppressive that says i don't get paid fairly for what i do 
right? And like, that's not empowering now, right? But we so often cannot tell one from the other unless we go and look at it. And we look at why did that idea get into my mind? And maybe that person needs to grieve, right? And, and share their fear and, and, you know, how awful it felt when their parents got divorced and they were yelling about money, right? And that the, the experience of that grief helps the person come to terms with that. So they're freed of the weight of it going forward. Right. And they can say, right, I am not a person who's greedy about money, but I am a person who wants to be paid fairly for what she does. Right. Yeah. We could say that about ourselves. Right. Because we know that, hey, those two things are different. And now we have we have the mastery that knowledge can bring to us. Right. Mm. None of us likes knowing that you know, this idea that, oh, maybe we're going through life just kind of unconscious and I'm doing things automatically. Nobody likes that. Right. It's like, hey, I want to understand myself. I want to feel like I'm in the driver's seat of my life. Right. Yeah. And trauma and the changes it makes in our brain can put us in the backseat of our lives. Right. And that's mm. part of the message I'm delivering is, hey, this is not good. I don't like that. I'm guessing you don't like that. And no one listening to us likes that. Right. There's something we all have in common. So we can use these these resources around us and just our own reflection. There's a resource. Right. So that we're not controlled by something and acting automatically because we don't understand the things that have gone on inside of us and how they affect us. I don't like that. And I want that to change as much as possible in all of us. Yeah. Yeah. It really reshaped my thinking about openly talking about traumatic events or just events that I'm may have felt ashamed from kind of like reflecting back to Carl Jung and the, the, the thing he talks about shadow work, where, you know, if you didn't embrace the entirety of your being, how can you live a full and fulfilling life? If you just aren't able to go into the darkness and embrace that when someone is trying to talk about, you know, let's say someone feels like, okay, I'm ready to talk about my events and what have happened to me what are some tips that you can share around how they can talk about it and what to degree, how open they should be and how they should even frame that event. So for example, I've had people talk about events, but they kind of downplay it because maybe they don't want to feel that shame or they are trying to repress it even while they are trying to openly talk about it. Um, What are some tips you have around like how to actually talk about it when they are ready to communicate? Right. No, again, you're asking just great questions. I mean, the, 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 the setting has to be one where the person feels safe, right? Because if, there, if a person is going to talk about a trauma and how it's impacted them, they have to be able to be open and honest about it. It doesn't help us to minimize my traumas. Oh, that wasn't really that bad. Or other people have had worse. I mean, that's a standard refrain, right? That's well, thing. this thing happened to me, but it's not like and then, you know, they'll think of the worst things we see on the news, right? You know, the Syrian parents with the children strapped to their back trying to swim across a body of water, right? And then we, we can use that to, to minimize our own traumas, right? And like, that's not helpful. That's never helpful to anyone. So yes, that is something awful that has happened to that other person. And, and I have an investment in trying to help that not happen, right? Or trying to help people who've been subject to that, even though I don't know them and they're half a world away. That's true, right? But that does not minimize my own trauma, 
right? Because we, we have to be able to be open about it because as you said, like going to a dark place, right? To talk about trauma or think about trauma often very much scares us, right? And we're worried, oh, if I go to a dark place because it's dark and mysterious, right? And we worry that then I won't come out, right? And people will say, oh, I'm, I can't talk about that. I'm, I'm worried I'll start crying and I'll never stop, right? We hear that a lot in what I do for a living, right? If you think about it, no one ever just starts crying and then never stops, right? No one ever starts crying, can't stop and like dies of dehydration because they can't stop crying, right? right. So, but we all say that or feel that at one, some point in time, right? If I go there, I'll never come back, right? I'll be lost in that darkness, whether it means I cry forever or I'll lose myself in it, right? And you think, what an effective lie that trauma tells us, right? Mm -hmm. The very thing that you have to do, which is go shine the light of day on that trauma, right? And it may be difficult and it may be arduous and you may need help with it. And the help may may have to unfold over time and you may cry and you may be up terribly upset. Like all those things may happen, but none of those things, make us less healthy, right? By doing those things, by coming to terms with, with trauma and the, it, the impact it's had on us, that's how we gain mastery. We shine mm -hmm. the light everywhere that trauma tells us, no, no, you have to keep that secret. And then it keeps the abscess going, right? It keeps the secrecy going. It keeps the fear and the shame going, right? Whereas what we need to do is exactly the opposite. Go and look at it, shine light all around it, put words to the thoughts and feelings. And when we do that in a safe setting, lo and behold, we get rid of that abscess, right? That psychological abscess, and then it stops impacting us. That's how the person lets go of in the example that you gave, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not greedy about money. They, they go back and they look at like, how did that feel when that divorce was happening? How afraid did that person feel, right? Did they feel responsible for it, right? Because often kids will feel like it's my fault, right? Yeah. And people have to say that and they know as an adult, how many people have said, I know as an adult, now I'm 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. I know that a five-year-old doesn't cause a divorce in their parents. I would say that to anyone else on earth, that's not your fault, but I feel that, right? I still mm. feel it, but you don't have to feel it. If you go and you process it, you, you set yourself free from feeling that. And now the trauma isn't weighing you down. And now that person can go and say, okay, but like, I want to be paid fairly. I want to be treated fairly, right? I deserve just to save money in order to take care of myself and the people around me. And, you know, there's, there's so much that then we can own in a way that makes life more simple, right? You know, mm -hmm. good mental health is always consistent with just simple principles, right? It may be that it's extremely complicated what's going on in our brains because our brains are wildly complicated, but the principles of health are simple. And if we can shine the light of day on the things that have happened to us, you know, talk about it, write about, re recall, feel the traumas that have happened with us, then we don't have to have them be anchors, right? That then tie us to the past in ways that control us and say things like, oh, I'm not greedy, so I won't take care of myself financially, or I can take care of myself financially, but I'll never have a good relationship, right? Or no one will ever really like me for who I am. And people will always sort of pretend, but I'm always cut off from other people. Like, these are the stories mm. we tell ourselves. And if we don't go and look at the trauma, then you imagine all these anchors, right, holding us to the past as we're trying to, to, to drag ourselves into the future, right, and, and sprint through the future, right, because there's so much going on. And now we're trying to do all that with the anchors of the past. And like, mm. it doesn't have to be that way. 
This may be a slightly unrelated symptom, but do you think imposter syndrome, which is something that I deal with, that most successful people deal with, come from some form of shame and trauma? Is there some relation to that? You know, again, it's a great question, right? And 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 honestly, I don't have an authoritative answer. I don't probably I don't think anyone has an authoritative answer because it's so complicated. But I think that there can be elements of that where where you can see a, a dramatic kind of imposter syndrome, right? Where people can feel it with things that are relatively um, low valence, right? So the person who just goes to work and does a good job right? Or is just a nice person when they're dating someone else who feels like they're an imposter, right? Like that will often link back to trauma because all the person is doing is like, they're just being a good person in the world, right? But they, they, they feel that there's something less than inside of them that the world is going to see, right? Mm. That I, I think is much more often related to the impact of trauma. It's a little bit different if you look at very, very highly qualified people, who, who feel like they're imposters, that can come because the conscientiousness and some of the obsessiveness and compulsiveness of highly qualified people can lead those people to have very skewed impressions so, of mm-hmm. themselves. So for example, you know, like I remember it's a true sort of working with a surgeon who, and I'm just making up the numbers because I don't remember exactly, but who did very complicated surgeries and had say on, on average four or five complications a year right? Whereas other surgeons, like really, really good surgeons in that discipline have on average 15 complications a year, right? But this surgeon feels like a fraud because it feels like, oh, those four or five complications should be zero, right? Now, in some sense, okay, there's, there's a balance there between the conscientiousness and the, like, the perfectionism that can lead a person to be so good at something, right? And then how that person can then sort of self-persecute about that. Like, it gets a little more complicated, but I think yeah. the roots of a lot of imposter syndrome in just that's going on in just the regular old us as we're going through the, through the world day to day, often are rooted in trauma and this sense inside that, hey, really inside, if people really look looked at me, they would see that I'm not good enough. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, as you're dealing with clients that maybe have imposter syndrome that are perhaps in the other end, where they are actually very high qualified, you know, exceptional at their craft. But because of that, and like the way they got there was through some level of imposter syndrome, which allowed them to work harder to get to you know, although this never ending flywheel of like continuously not feeling like you're good enough, but it doesn't end up making them improve faster. Is there some level of healthy imposter syndrome that you encourage people to have? Like when I think about kind of myself is, is like, I am the most critical for, of what I do and what I don't do, uh, but it actually allows me to perform better. Um, And I guess some hesitancies that I might have around trauma is that and or like healing trauma is that it might remove that edge absolutely that i have yes you gave the perfect example like that is exactly what happens right is when a person is good at something right and, and it could be professional it could be personal it could be raising kids it could be growing a garden it could be doing their job really really well whatever it may be there can be a fear that if i go a little bit easier on myself like i know that there's trauma in me and often we know that there's that, that thing or there's that other thing or this this weight on me right that if we go and we 
take care of that, if we attend to that, right, that we will lose our edge, right? And, you know, we'll get complacent, right? And, and really, that's actually not how it goes, right? That, that there is a sweet spot of, in a sense, being, having high expectations of self, right? And saying, look, I do what I do as best I can do it. And I'm the person, if I think I'm exhausted after I've done what I've done, and I've been over it five times, and like, I'm ready to stop it. If I realize, you know, I go over it one more time, I think I can make it even better, right? Saying, okay, that, that's good, right? Because I have high expectations of myself and high standards for myself. And therefore, I'm going to persevere, even if I'm fatigued or tired, or I've been over this so many times, right? There's a difference between that and persecuting yourself, saying it's never good enough, right? Mm-hmm. And no matter how you leave it, you have to leave it saying, you know, you probably didn't do a good enough job, right? Like there's a difference between having high expectations and persecuting oneself, right? That surgeon, when that surgeon has that complication, right? Does that surgeon say, look, I'm doing the best I can, and I know that I'm good at at, at what I do, right? And I'm going to look at this complication. I'm going to understand it as best I can, because ideally, I want to have zero, right? Mm -hmm. I know that four or five a year is better than the dozen a year on average everyone else has, but that doesn't mean this one I just had couldn't maybe have been avoided, so I'm going to look at that, right? That's much more productive than saying a complication I was, oh, no, I'm, ter- I'm, I am, I'm terrible at this, right? I'm not good at this. I'm going to fall apart. People are going to see I don't know what I'm doing. That's not helpful, right? Yeah. So self-persecution is not the same as having high standards for oneself. And that's where we want to live in the high standards, not the self-persecution that comes often of trauma or of too much of a good thing is never a good thing. So too much, too much perfectionism, for example, right, becomes not a good thing. So regardless of where it's coming from, it's never helpful to be into the self-persecution range of things because then then that impacts the life narrative and the self-talk and everything else yeah 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 i mean i yeah it's hard to know what part of it comes from trauma and what part of it comes from conscientiousness right i mean it kind of reminds me of the quote from nietzsche about all great people play some form of actors of their own ideals like there is Mm -hmm. some form of acting we're doing that makes us feel like maybe we are imposters when we're trying to always improve and get to that next level of our identities. Um, but it's, I think it's a great explanation that, that you shared around that. Um, f- final question for you, yeah, um, sure. just around like, you know, being in a situation where maybe you have a partner or a family member or a best friend or close colleague, and you can see that they're dealing with something, right? Yeah. I imagine some sort of form of trauma or shame. How do we help people beyond ourselves deal with that or openly talk about it? What's the best way to approach that? Obviously not as a psychiatrist or professional. What's amazing is how often we see that something is not okay in someone else, right? But we don't say anything about it, right? And we make, you know, so often it's our own discomfort, right? Or it can be our fear that will make things worse. Well, if the person wanted to say something, they would come talk to me, or they've got other people to talk about, or they're probably going through something and it'll end, right? Like it, we, we say this so often. And again, I don't think it comes from a bad place in us. It often comes from a confused place, or it might come from traumas that are inside of us, right? But the idea that, hey, to have just a gentle overture to someone, right? You know, it doesn't hurt a person, right? To say, hey, I just, you know, I just want to say that, you know, I see that you've been a little different lately and you seem kind of down or or like i know that thing something really hard happened a couple months ago like i know you had that breakup a couple months ago or you lost that job or 
you know, someone near you was was sick and died of, you know, had an aunt or an uncle that died of the virus. Or, you know, and I, I could just see like, maybe it's, I don't know, it looks like maybe it's, it's taking a toll on you, it's impacting you. No, I'm here to, to talk about it if you want, right? Mm. Or if you don't want to talk about it, to talk about, you know, the things you could do or someone you could talk about, just, just want to let you know. Like, like it's something like that, that's not, it's not overly pushy, right? It's just saying, hey, I, I witness you and I see something. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I, you know, I see it and I, I care about you. So I just want to put it out there. You know, man, it's remarkable what a difference that can make. Because people can go through life, but sometimes the trauma is screaming inside of them. But they go through life and no one knows. That person seems okay. And, you know, so it's so unfortunate that at times we don't, you know, we don't know, you know, we, there's so much that goes on that can lead up to a person choosing to end their life by suicide. But you know, so often people will say, I didn't know that person seemed fine. And right, because they're, they're holding something in, but often it's something that, you know, is begging for the, the relief or the release that just a kind word and an overture could show. And I think just like, you know, looking at the world around us, looking at ourselves and other people and saying in a very simple way, like, hey, if I kind of know you, even if it's just in a passing way, and I see that you're different, why do I not say something, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's often the the greater the shame, the less likely they're able to talk about or even bring up hints that they're dealing with that. And it's it's kind of the, um, my aunt committed suicide and none, none of us really suspected it. And whenever I see people cry out for help subconsciously or provide hints that they need some help, you know, I, I generally feel like those people are still able to be you know, salvaged and gone through the process of healing. Whereas the people that are already ready to end, they would have just done it. Right. And um, I, I know you dealt with that with that family member as well. And um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's just that feeling of feeling understood or that some that you can speak with someone is so powerful, such a small gesture on, on the other person, but right. so powerful. I think all the things we can do is like investing a nickel in someone else's health and you know and they get a thousand dollar return right you know it's like something you know even it's obviously so much more important than that but what i think you're pointing out is you can it's a small it can be a small thing to do that can make such a huge difference and and i think it's a reason why if a person chooses and has thought about it being open about our own traumas helps to reduce stigma right which is part of why i write in my book about losing my brother to suicide right and i'm i'm open in just the world around me like i don't feel ashamed of it right so yeah. if if a situation comes up where where it, it makes sense to talk about it either because i can see that someone else is ashamed of something or or i don't know and just saying it generally out into the world right and i think when people who have any you know stature in any way right even just the fact that i wrote a book and you can read the book and i and i i'm a psychiatrist and i'm open about my own trauma right or some of the way that other people have you know stephanie germanata who's lady gaga who wrote the ford to my book who is open about her own trauma right it has obviously a, a tremendous you know position on the world stage and to say mm -hmm. look i'm not ashamed of this like you know trauma happens to us and we don't have to keep it secret and i don't have to be ashamed of it and you don't either and mm -hmm. and i think you know so sometimes sharing with someone that we've been through things too you know can be helpful without sharing too much but a person can say i noticed that you're a little different and look i've been through 
a, a lot myself, and sometimes things that are hard to think about or talk about or share, you know, that can let it, that can work against the stigma because trauma says, no, 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 you should feel ashamed of this, right? You're not going to say anything about it. You hold it inside, right? I mean, that's the whispering voice of trauma, the devil on the shoulder that says, keep me secret so I can grow inside of you, right? And continue to harm you. And sometimes an entreaty that says, hey, I see something in you and I've got it in me too, you know? Oh, okay. Person may be more likely to, you know, to not listen to that devil's voice of trauma, so to speak, and, you know, and, and say what's truly going on. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, this, this has probably one of been one of the most powerful, important um, conversations I've had on the, on the podcast. So I, I really, really Thank appreciate you. your, your, your time to talk on to you. And Thank you. Uh, obviously I want, I want to make sure people check out your book, Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic, how trauma works and how we can heal from it. We'll definitely link that all below. So highly recommend forward by Lady Gaga as well. Um, fascinating story. Where, where else can people find you online and how can people learn more about you? Sure, there's a website for me and it's just doctor. So D-R and then my name. So D-R Paul Conti, uh, last name is C-O-N-T-I. And it has links to where one can buy the book online uh, and just a little bit more about me. Um, most of what's out there about me is through podcasts like this. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk to interesting people like you who have, who have a whole set of thoughts and experiences that then lead to such a good conversation. So I'm out there in various podcasts and that website gives a link of where to buy the book. And it's in most bookstores too, most major bookstores at this point. So thank you very much. I, I appreciate that you've given me an opportunity to talk about something that I just feel is so important and thank you for having me on and for how thoughtful your your questions were no thank you thank you thank you guys for listening and uh we'll see you guys in the future episodes Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.